Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good evening. Welcome to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show. We thank you for joining us wherever you are. You could have done anything else and could be doing anything else, and yet you've decided to check in with us. 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us right now to get into any discussion we may have. And we got a lot. We're going to get to it. Uh, if you have any questions, you can hit us there. Um, and, of course, of course, um, you always can reach out to us by email at labachelor40 at gmail.com, or um, certainly you can hit us up at Pad Nation on Facebook. We're live on Facebook now, and um, or LA Bachelor as well. Twitter, Pad, Pad Nation, too. I want to bring in my first guest. He is a licensed relationship therapist. Uh, of course, uh, he has been featured on Cosmopolitan uh, 51 First Dates podcast and the DBS podcast. Good to have him on uh, for the first time. He is Trey H. Hennis. And, Trey, listen, I appreciate you. You, you said don't call you doctor, so I, I may call you Dr. Trey just to play on it a little bit. Um, but nevertheless, we, pre- we appreciate you coming on this evening, sir. Fantastic. Absolute pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. So I, I wanted to bring you on. We, we're doing a series, um, and it, we can't get it all in one show, about black love. Black love in terms of two people, a spouse, you know, um, uh, male, female, otherwise, and, and certainly um, love of self, which could hinder a lot of relationships, I would think, in your profession you see. But in, in terms of the origin of the issues that black men and women have in this society. And I, I got all the stats. We could throw that around all day, you know, marriage and percentages and interracial day, all that stuff is in front of me. But I want to go to you and ask you what, in your professional opinion, whether it be some of your patients or just in your studies, is sort of the, the core, the origin, the decline, not only just of marriages, but this this relationship we call uh, between black men and black women. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think there are a few different components. You know, if we talk about the breakdown of marriage, you know, the relationship between black men and black women, I think one of the first things you have to take into consideration is technology. You know, the age of information uh, has essentially changed dating, marriage, the ideologies of marriage, the paradigms of long-term commitment and monogamy. It's just completely changed the game. In addition to that, the Western world, every year we become more progressive with the paradigms of what monogamy means. You know, we've seen the rise of polyamory, and that is when you and your partner decide to be in relationships with other people while still being in relationships with each other. We've seen the rise of internet dating and app dating where you can essentially date with anonymity and no one really knows that you're married or or in a relationship. Um, And we've seen the acceptance of essentially uh, marrying who you want to marry. The good thing is that there's still a large percentage of, uh, you know, 85% of black men are still marrying black wives. Uh, 9% have a white spouse, 3% have Hispanic, and um, the other 3% have other. I don't really know what that means. Um, but essentially, <laughs> technology is, is slowly tearing apart, you know, institutionalized monogamy and marriage that we've seen for, for decades and centuries. But where does that come from, though? I mean, let's let's go back to the marriage part. As you, you mentioned, um, 
the decline, the numbers in marriage, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you know, only 29% of uh, African-Americans are married. And that's down from four years ago. Um, so you talked about, you know, online dating and those things and, and being able to be uh, sort of secret in what you're you're doing. But there has to be an origin of why you're doing it. Why, if you're married, that you decide as a black man and woman that you decide that you want to step out of your marriage and and start another relationship with another man or another woman um, or whatever. Um, is the core value gone from from black marriages, from black people in terms of when they come together in a relationship? Are our are, are core values going away? And if so, is it because of the technology, the online dating, the, the, the wanting to take a, a bite from that other apple? Yeah, you know, I, I think people, Time and time. So there's an old saying, right, where you are only as good. A man is only as faithful as his options. Now, I'm not saying that's a fact. I'm not saying that I stand by that, but that's an old saying, right? And now, you see, back in the day, you know, you could meet someone at a gas station. You could meet someone at an apartment complex. You could meet someone at work. You could meet someone at school, you know. And those were basically the forms of meeting people. So your options were limited and the person that you stuck with you felt like was the best you could get because you really hadn't seen that many options now you could literally be sitting through the comfort of your own home and you can have a single bar in the comfort of your own hand and you can swipe and find someone that if there wasn't this technology you never would have seen before and unfortunately what that gives people is a paradox of not getting married because they're waiting for the next best option because they know that if it doesn't work out with the person that perhaps they should have been destined to marry, that there's always going to be another option. There's always going to be a next best thing because all you have to do is pick up your phone and swipe and swipe and swipe until you have that match. So when people traditionally used to commit, when people traditionally used to work through relationships, used to talk through problems, used to be master communicators, that's just not happening anymore because people don't need to do that. Because people know that if I have a big argument with the person that I'm in a relationship right now, maybe I can find someone who doesn't argue like that. But what they don't realize is that when you leave a relationship because you guys can't get through conflict resolution, the next person that perhaps doesn't have that fault that the previous person has, they're going to have another fault that you don't like. And that next person is going to have another issue that you don't like. And what's happening right now is, Millennials, particularly people who are at the ages between 25 to 35 right now, is they're going through this cycle. They're getting in relationships that last from three to four months, and what they're doing is any kind of conflict or any issues or if there's a small thing that they don't particularly like, they're out of it. And there was a, a study that was released by the Pew Research Center that essentially said 25% of millennials are likely never to ever be married. And that's because of that one paradox of online dating. Well, if you're just joining us, we're, we're talking with Trey H. Hennis. Uh, he's a licensed re relationship ther therapist, a black, black man himself. Uh, full disclosure, uh, we try to reach out to um, kind of balance the scale with a female um, a black therapist, and um, we were unable to do that. Uh, but will continue as this these shows go on we'll, we'll certainly will have uh that situation you know um trey you one of the things uh, again going back to the core and you you like 
I like the term back in the day that you use. You know, back in the day, yes, uh, it, it seems though our grandparents and and their parents uh, worked things out. Um, there was a lot more emphasis. Certainly, you can even look at the numbers there. Um, emphasis on spirituality um, that it was biblical that you stay married, um, not just for the sake of your soul, but the sake of your kids. We'll get to that in a, a second. But it was biblical and spiritual to stay together. Um, and some experts and some uh, sort of articles to say that black men and black women are going in opposite directions in at that aspect that um, I've, I've seen that, you know, a lot of black women, if they aren't dating, hitting that button on the phone, um, they're holding out, if you will, quote unquote, um, for that godly man. And to a lesser percentage, and I'm not trying to kill either side, to a lesser percentage, maybe not so much with black men. So they don't stay in these relationships. They get divorced because they want to have that core values. We can get into if somebody, you know, infidelity and all that kind of stuff. But do you, do you buy into that? Have you researched that? Have you had um, any of your, your patients or clients deal with that of, uh, about, you know, the spiritual moral side of things have been part of the disconnect of the black family? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting you say that in, in the black community, traditionally, we're, we're very religious, you know, we're very Christian. And I think that there is a disconnect between the modern black male and the modern black women. You know, right now we're living in an age where, you know, black women are, and I don't want to generalize, but in the kind of couples that I've spoken to, the single people that I've spoken to for relationship advice, you know, oftentimes the black women that, you know, they're coming to me saying that a lot of men they're dating aren't necessarily God-fearing. Some of them don't even believe in God. And again, I'm not saying that's all of them, but that, that right. seems to be the big disconnect right there. In addition to that, what we're seeing is that we are kind of in a weird world right now where we want to be progressive. We want to talk about equality and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of people want it both ways. And by that, I mean, they want to have a traditional role. They want to have a traditional marriage where the man is leading the way. The man is paying the majority of the bills. You know, the man is the patriarch of the house. But at the same time, you know, they want it where it's equality in the sense that, okay, a man has to be an alpha, he has to lead the way, he has to, you know, pay a majority of the bills, but they also want it where, you know, he's essentially doing what he can to make sure that she's happy, he's looking after the kids, he's, you know, changing diapers as well, he's preparing meals as well. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, I buy into any particular gender role, but what I'm saying is, a lot of people feel like they can have it both ways. And if you want a traditional God-fearing marriage, you can't have it both ways. That's just not the reality of modern relationships right now because the world is telling you one thing, right? You should do this. You should look at your career first. You know, don't ever let a woman tell you what to do. Don't ever let a man tell you what to do. But then traditions are telling you the complete opposite. And, you know, no man can mm. serve two masters, right? That, and that's uh, certainly out of uh, out of the good book. Um, you know, uh, it, w with that being said, I, I had a conversation with someone the other day, you know, having it both ways, wanting, uh, you know, a man to be um, sensitive uh, 
to a woman's needs, being, you know, allowing them to be a damsel, you know, being a polite, opening the doors, paying for dinner, things of that nature leading up, you know, if you're dating leading up to uh, long-term and a marriage, which is, could be two different things. Um, and, and some women sort of buck about that. So how, how do, how do you merge the two? I mean, is there any possibility of the understanding there? Because, you know, some people think that if, if two sides are sort of have these, uh, traditions and even I would say preconceived notions, then you lose out. You might have missed the, the greatest man you would have would have been your partner or the, the greatest woman that would have been your, your wife forever because of the mixture and, and I guess what I'm saying is that uh, uh are are the people going to listen to what society says and let that be um the way they lead their relationships or are they going to go to traditional marriage and relationships? Exactly. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always the first to this, right? Back in the day, the, the general consensus was, you know, if, if there's a man who's, you know, making a bulk of the money and, you know, the woman is at home looking after the kids, the role was always, you know, the man would, make the money, put food on the table, you know, take care of the family. And that was his role, right? And then the woman's role was, hey, you know, I take care of the kids. You know what I mean? Like, I'll take care of the house, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not saying, again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that this is, you know, anything that I stand by. I stand by an individualist, um, an individual approach between you and your spouse. But I'm going to get into that in a second. But what, what we're seeing now is that, you know, the trade-offs that, that people want aren't matching and they don't usually discuss it until they're a couple of dates in. Sometimes that they're, they're even in a relationship. So uh, both parties, you know, men want it where, and I wouldn't say all men, but some men want it where, you know, they can be their provider and, and they can have, they can take care of their woman and, you know, they want something in return, uh, but they're not getting it. And then some women, they feel to themselves, okay, well, you know, so long as you take care of me, I'll take care of you. And a lot of men aren't taking care of them because they feel like, okay, well, you know, if you want equality, then you're going to pay for your half. You're going to pay for your meal. You know what I mean? Like if, if you truly want equality, then, you know, you can't have it both ways. You know, I'm not going to take care of you if you want to be, you know, if you want to have that sense of equality in the relationship. And what I think needs to happen, and, and this is what for me, is, you know, the first couple of dates, you two just have an honest conversation. You know, you look at your woman in the eye and say, hey, what do you think is good for you in a relationship? What works for you? And as a man, you say, hey, this is what works for me in a relationship. I'll give an example, okay? For me, you know, um, I believe in equality and all that stuff. And I think that, you know, relationships should really be what you two decide. But I also like a woman who embraces the feminine i don't really typically i'm not attracted to masculine women right that's a preference that i have i'm always going to you know let the person that i'm trying to be in a relationship know right so she and i know that we're on the same page and if you're a woman you should say hey you know i'm looking for a, a god-fearing man i'm looking for a masculine man i'm looking for an alpha man and you be very clear what you want because that way there could be no disputation there can't be a situation where the guy said oh 
but I didn't know you wanted that because you never communicated it from the get-go. Everything needs to happen from the first three dates in regards to communication. It's it's funny you, you brought that up, um, Dr. Trey, because when you uh, you have situations where um, people are dating, there is no, it seems, right, no no real honesty. It's almost like I used to say years ago, um, you know, when you're hungry, everything tastes good. So sometimes it seems, Doc, you know better than I do, that um, it seems as though black men and women tend to try to force relationships that are not there. You can't put a square, a square in a circle based on whatever they want, whether they're trying to, whether the woman's trying to um, make the man that they just met into what they want it to be or perceive and the opposite. Like they, you know, you know, after a few dates, right, that is probably sometimes after a, a conversation that's probably not going to be, a good mix. So why, what is the reason behind that? Is that insecurity? Is that, you know, because people feel lonely? Why do they try to force relationships that are really not there? You know, especially now with, you know, the, the civil rights movement that we're, we're almost reigniting in regards to talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. I think a lot of black men and black women feel like, look, you know, we're going through an important movement right now, and I, I want to be with, you know, a brother or a sister that's, you know, going to help me raise kids so we can protect them and, and help them understand what it truly means to to be black and, and proud, right? But, you know, it's it's very steeper among blacks right now. I, I mean, I remember reading an article that said that in the 1960s, you know, 74% of whites were married, and that rate dropped to 56% in 2008. And, and when I think about that, that's a huge, huge drop. But what's interesting is that in comparison to blacks, in 1960, 61% of blacks were married, okay? In 2008, it's only 32%. Black people are getting divorced more often and remarry less frequently than uh, Caucasian people right now, which is nuts when you think about it. Um, and, and this is something that, you know, whenever I try and counsel a couple, you know, I let them know how imperative it is that they survive in this modern dating world and relationship world and marriage world right now because, you know, things are slowly falling apart and we need to stick together if we're going to be in a situation where we can progress as a people. Uh, you know, um, Doc, and I, I got a question that came in, and I want to remind people that you can get online and ask questions at 646-929-0130. Um, you can also hit us up in the chat room uh, online if you're listening online. Uh, you can hit us up with your questions and comments in the chat room as well. Email us, labachelor40 at gmail.com, and hit us up on Facebook at Pad Nation or Twitter at Pad Nation too if you have uh, a question. So there's all kinds of ways to get to uh, Dr. Trey, and then ask some some questions. Doc, when you when you mention all of that, um, and it it goes to um, we I asked about you know what are the reasons why they they do what they do in terms of trying to force relationships. One of the the stats and one of the things that I think people don't black people don't really realize. 
is that, and it goes back to the Monaghan letters back, you know, in 1962, um, that if we already know, is Captain Obvious is, you know, statistically kids grow up better when there's a mother and father in in the household, married. They don't really go into just living together, but mother and father there in the household. They They do generally better in all phases of their life for the most part. Um, and if that doesn't happen, you know, the numbers go down, single moms, you know, no, no men in the household, we get into incarceration and why they're not doing things of that nature. But the kids get affected. So it's almost, it's, it's what's worse for children, at least two parents that stay together knowing they should not be together. They probably shouldn't even gotten together in the first place for the sake of the kids. And then, you know, kids are smart. They see things, they know things and they absorb things. So they see the, the tension, if there's tension there or parents that get divorced um, and those kids have to deal with, you know, the separation. You're staying with mom. Sometimes you're staying with dad. Sometimes maybe dad's not there all the time. Maybe mom, gave up her right, whatever the case may be, what's worse? I mean, because ultimately um, the breakdown of the family has affected the kids, and, and kids learn, you know, from those surroundings and those adults that are around them, good or bad. I concur with you fully. I, I think it's it's definitely difficult because there is that stigma of, you know, having the paradigm of single moms because, you know, black men, we still have a significantly higher incarceration rate, right? And that leaves, you know, uh, a lot of uh, boys or, or girls motherless, uh, fatherless, and it's difficult for them to kind of want to get married because that's not necessarily something that they grew up with. And when I say this, you know, this isn't me necessarily victim shaming or anything like that, but you could imagine that you know, in the 70s and 60s when there weren't any video cameras to film the atrocities that some police officers had done or, you know, when Bill Clinton, you know, had that act where even if you had some weed, essentially you could be locked up for five to six years, right? You know, there's generations that are still trying to recover from that, you know, generations that didn't see their father around because he was locked up for for blatant racism or racial profiling, and, and that is suffering that people... You know, people in my generation, you know, we're suffering by the effects of that right now because some of us didn't grow up with a traditional family. So it's hard for us to want that. I also think when you talk about, you know, characteristics and situations why black men and black women are, are getting married less, I think expectations are, are very, very high for both parties. But I want to focus specifically on, on women's preferences. You know, black men, a lot of them, and the black men that I've spoken to have, have felt like they have an increasing amount of pressure and that they fall very short of a woman's preference. You know, for example, I had uh, a guy I was talking to about two months ago who had recently broken up with his girlfriend, and he wanted me to, to help him find a date. You know, he wanted me to, to get an online dating profile. So I, I did his online dating profile for him. I helped him with his bio. And he said to me, he said, you know, it's kind of crazy out there. You know, women want you to have, you know, an amazing body, a, a six-figure job. They want you to be empathetic, but they want you to be 
alpha. You know, they don't want you to be trying too hard, but they want you to be trying hard. They want to be taken out. They want someone to raise a family. They don't want you to have any kids. They don't want you to have any debt. They don't want you. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And again, you know, I'm not saying that this is just separate to black women, but I don't date, you know, men. So I wouldn't really be able to talk from a woman's perspective. Um, but, you know, they, they have very, very high aspirations, which isn't a bad thing. But I'll give you an example, right? When black women were asked uh, how important it is that they have a good husband or a partner to provide a good income, two-thirds of black women said that it was very, very important compared to 32% of white women. And then roughly 55% of black women said that it was very important for a husband or partner to be well-educated compared to 28% of white women. So what that's saying is that um, a lot of black women are saying that, look, you know, 55% of them to be specific are saying, look, you know, you're not really going to get an opportunity if you're not highly educated, which I think is drastically unfair because not everyone is afforded the privilege of being highly educated. I think, you know, some of the best employees have worked for me who have just had high school diplomas. And quite frankly, they've worked harder than most people who have university degrees. And, and that's a stigma that, that needs to die. And then half of the black women said that financial stability should be an important precondition for marriage, but only a quarter of white women felt that way. Now, when I say this, I'm not saying that, you know, Caucasian women are better than black women. What I am saying is that black women have very, very high expectations for black men. I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing, but I do think that there is a portion of black men who don't fulfill that criteria, who feel like they're losing out and feel like it's not even a battle that I want to fight because there's no way I can possibly win right now. Wow. You know, it's, 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 I'm, I'm glad you, you said that uh, again. Um, I, I'm a, a member of a few different groups, real, real dads and some, some stuff like that. Um, we have conversations like that a, a, a lot about those things and I won't get into my specifics, but a lot of, a lot of the brothers say that, you know, that, that that's the case. Even when, you know, um, prejudging everybody tends to prejudge on some some level and you know some of the brothers have said to me you know um i i just don't know what what they want black women want you know if i'm dressed and clean cut they think i'm soft if i look like a thug then i'm too i'm too thugged out they don't want that if i and and i think the um the what you mentioned in regards to education um there are a lot of opportunities to get an education i do think that you know some form of training i would say is important Mm -hmm. but like you said not everybody's going to get a degree and then at the same time i do believe that uh a you want to i would want someone um to be bringing something to the table financially, working at least, right? Um, If you're able-bodied, you're not, you know, disabled or anything. Um, And certainly, and the other thing is, you know, coming to the table if you, uh, you know, you're either trying to improve your credit and you're standing or you have good credit. I mean, these are the things that I think both men, black women, men and women kind of look at, especially 
if if they're in that position. But does that mean from those stats that you said, Dr. Trey, that um, is it hard for, say, an educated, well-off black woman to even give an opportunity or come into the same circles of a black man who is the opposite and you know same thing with a black man black man who's well off and um educated trying to date and be in a relationship and have a long lasting relationship with a woman that is not of those same areas well you know i i think you have to to look at at the expectations for both sexes right you know the, typically the saying goes a man is only as good is what he can provide. That rings very, very true. You know, I noticed a, a significant change in the kind of relationships I had when I was broke and studying my MBA and my undergraduate <laughs> versus when I was actually having a salary job, right? There was a significant change with my dating opportunities, right? But that same mentality is not given to women. You will never hear anyone say a woman's value is only as good as what she can provide financially. You know, for most men, a woman's value is how she can support him, right? How they can grow together. You know, we're biologically wired to want and need certain things. Even though we're all about equality these days, we still can't ignore, you know, what we're biologically required to want. Men have been the hunter and gatherer since the beginning of time, literally hunting bison as cavemen. Do you see where we're coming from? So, you know, when we talk about, if you are a significantly successful black man, when it comes to getting a woman, you're going to have a much easier task as opposed to if you are a significantly successful black woman and you're trying to get a man because a lot of men are intimidated. Let's take away black women in general by significantly successful women because most women who are very successful in the corporate world, they've had to embrace masculine energy to get there. Because the American corporate workforce and the Western corporate workforce is still very male-dominated and very male-gendered, which means if you're a woman and you want to climb the ladder, you need to embrace those masculine traits. I would like it to change, but that's the situation we're in right now. Therefore, if a woman is a VP or a CEO or anything like that, typically she has masculine traits, and most men don't really want to date that. Some beta males... But, uh, but also, isn't it... It, isn't it? You talked about DNA. I didn't mean to cut you off, Doctor Trey, but DNA with the men who—is it just intimidation, or is it a man prejudging that successful black woman, saying, "Oh, she ain't gonna want to do it. She, she got every letter on, on after her name, the PhD, and all that. She, she's not gonna want to work with me. I'm a construction worker, whatever case, no disrespect to them, but is it not just intimidation, but is also prejudging that the fact that, you know, why would she want to even deal with me? Is that insecurity? Yeah, I I would definitely say it's 50-50. I'd say it's one, you know, men definitely have a bit of insecurity, you know, with masculine women. And two, you know, they feel like, well, you know, I've been a bus driver for the past 10 years. You know, I, I just, don't think there's anything that I can do about this, you know, or they could say, well, you know, she's so educated and so intelligent. There's no way she would even give me a shot. So I think a solution for that is, you know, if we want to boost marriage rates uh, amongst black people, you know, we should really focus on 
uh, improving job opportunities and education, particularly mm. for black men. Um, you know, black women are winning right now, and, and I'm for it. They're winning significantly more than black men. Um, you know, I, I was reading an article, and it's, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, they were saying that 18.4% of black men were jobless compared to 9.6% of white men. Now, we're not going to get into, you know, the historical atrocities of systematic racism, right? Because we know why we're here, fine. But at the same time, you know, there are still significant racial disparities that persist. I mean, end of March, you know, I was laid off by my job due to COVID. And it took me about two and a half months to get back into work, whereas I had a Caucasian counterpart where it took him a month. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics. It could have been, you know, maybe he had better context and connections that, that, that I did than I did. But my point we is... Know what, we know what it is, Dr. Trey. We, we know what it is, Dr. <laughs> Trey. Well, go ahead. We know. Come on. We know what it is. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but, but what I'm saying is, you know, we need to give black men more opportunities to, to thrive. You know, we need to allow the patterns that we've seen before to be changed and you know, black women, they, they got to give us a shot, you know, they got to realize that we're still struggling, you know, we're still seen as a certain element in society and, and we need to be accepting of all people regardless of educational financial status. Right. And, you know, I, I will say this too, to, to your point about uh, uh, black women, um, some of the most educated over the last few decades, they're much more aggressive than men, black men, right? They and and we tend to want to grunt it out, you know, historically, if you will. We'll, we'll work that nine to five. They want more. They're more tentative. They 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 work as hard statistically, harder, as you mentioned. Um, so there, there's those things. I want to get to a a question that came in. And got a lot of people actually sending in questions. Uh, Kimberly uh, said that she wants that traditional uh, black man, that black husband, that is, you know, um, steeped in godly values. That's that's what she wants. And and that was her question. You can address that, but uh, just to, to add on to that, um, what about even if you want the godly values, but you know, again, let's live in a real world. You're not going to get the perfect person. The, the the last perfect person we know, you know, walked on water and is supposed to be coming back. If you believe in 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 the book, but but the thing is that if if you can get eighty percent of what you want and deal with the twenty percent you don't get, you know, the eighty twenty rule, isn't that enough? And 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 one would think that the godly principles will probably be built into that anyway. Yeah. And you know, it's, I want to touch on the first question, then I'm going to touch on the second one. So, you know, if you want to find a, a godly man who you feel like embraces, you know, the key attributes of, you know, a man, right. In a relationship and marriage, then you need to go to the places where you can traditionally find them. And that's not going to be the club. That's not going to be the bar. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm sure there's a preacher that's gone to a good bar in his time, right? Or stuff. But I'm talking about those people that are in the same club 
every week, the same bars every week on a Saturday night. I very much doubt that the guy's going to be coming out of some club at 3 a.m. and I'm making sure he can wake up at 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. to go to his Sunday service, right? So mm. if you want to find a God-fearing man, you need to go to the places where God-fearing men are going to be. For example, look at your local chamber of black commerce, okay? Look at your local church gathering. Look at your reach-out events. Look at events you know, charity events, you know, where good black men are generally going to be. Because black men who don't care about that sort of stuff, they ain't going to be there. You know, they ain't going to be no, if, if, if there's a black man who, who's not a god a man, he's not going to be going to no reach-out event. He's not going to be feeding the homeless. He's not going to be going to no march <laughs> or protest. You see what I'm saying? Like, you need to go to the places where you can find good men, okay? And I always tell right. people it's not going to be the bar or the club. It might be a dating app. But you need to be specific and strategic when you do that. I, you know, if I'm a woman and I'm looking for a God-fearing man, I'm not going to be swiping on the guy who's topless. That guy's not God-fearing man. The only thing he's fearing is that he's going to get a belly and he's going to lose his six-pack. So, yeah. Let me ask you, let me just play advocate with you, Dr. Trey. Let me ask you, uh, uh, play play advocate, I should say, not devil's advocate, but advocate. But some people would say, well, you still see – you know, the wolves in sheep's clothing at the church, at these uh, protests, at these other events. So, you know, again, maybe it's a smaller portion than if you go to the club, but maybe you still find those people. In other words, you know, it maybe comes into your 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 innermost sense, your spiritual sense, as some people say, Holy Spirit, some people say, that you kind of figure it out and discern things, but how do you figure it out? Because, if it, you know, we, we know stories of pastors that have fallen short and had oh, wives yeah. and embezzled money and things of that nature, too. Uh, so, you know, as soon as we're talking about God-fearing men, I, I'm going to, by, by their fruits, you may know them, Okay which mm. basically is saying that actions speak far louder than words, you know. And right. I always say to women, look, if you're trying to get to know if a guy's God-fearing, you know, and I'm going to get quite raw here, think about the sexual component of things, okay? I believe that if a man is willing to wait, now I'm not talking about waiting till marriage. I'm not that old school. I'm old school, but I ain't that old school. Okay, I'm not. If you want to wait till marriage, <laughs> you know, by all means. But I'm not looking to. I, I would never do that. I think that's madness. You know what I'm saying? But for example, I was once in a situation where I was dating someone and we didn't have sex for two months because you know that was important to her, right? And I was like, all right, that's that's kind of important to me as well. I could do it in three weeks, but if you want to do two months, it's fine by me. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like I was willing to wait because I was, you know, confounded by her beliefs and I, I believed in it, but she wanted to take it there. I wanted to take it there. Right. And you're going to find men that are significantly better than me that like, yeah, let's, let's just date and, and give it a couple of months till we share that moment. Right. If the guy says he's God fearing and then it's the second date and he's like, yo, come over to the house. Like, you know, let's get it on. Then that guy's not got fear. He's playing around. He's playing around. Okay. You, you know, women, in fact, are far more discerning than men because they've had to deal with yeah. it from 16 and upwards. You know, women get specifically attractive women. They get harassed all the time. You get, I mean, I remember once I was uh, at the gas station, you know, my girl was in the car and then she got out because it was too hot and she was on her phone. I walk out the gas station. There's some guy trying to run up on her. 
He's just trying to talk to her. I said, hey, we good over here? He's like, oh, sorry, man. Is this you? I said, yeah, this is me. So my point <laughs> being is that women, <laughs> you know, women get har- har- harassed and guys trying to pick them up, you know, on a daily basis. So they know a good man that's in front of them. And if they don't, then they need to start looking back at the mistakes they've made with men before. I'll give you another example, okay, for me. So I know that if I'm texting someone and, you know, she's not that good at texting, she responds the next day, that's typically not a good sign. She's just going to waste my time. She's dealing with other guys. She's not that interested. I know that by historical data throughout my relationship life. If you're a woman, you know the certain things that you have done in your past and the result hasn't ended in your favor, stop doing that thing in the past. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. Mm. That's real talk. I, and uh, I like <laughs> what you said. <laughs> the, the guy was hollering at your girl. That was uh, that was funny. You know, um, and 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 you know, I mean, we're we're men. You know, the wind blows and we get excited. I mean, let's just be let's be real <laughs> about that. I mean, I mean, really. You know, you know that that's yeah, that's really real. uh, we we are. Um, but it, it's it's important though too, just to to. Look at the other side, um, because what about the men who – well, let me backtrack, uh, Dr. Trey. I think that – I think you agree that just like parenting, society looks at uh, the woman in a better light than the man. Now, the man has caused that a lot, abandonment, you know, cheating and things of that nature – but there are some good men out there, right, in terms of being good fathers, you know, and being good men, um, those who really want something. But I think society um, paints this picture, and maybe some women buy into that, um, you know, he, you know, I got dogs, so the next one's going to be a dog. Or, um, you know, men don't hurt. We hurt. Men just move on. We don't hurt. We never get our bro- our hearts broken or anything like that. Um, well, I won't get into my personal stuff, but th- those things do happen. What what about that side of things? So you're saying what about the side of things where men essentially when it comes to court, they, they're they seen as like uh, – you're saying that they're seen as like uh, we are the aggressors in the situation. I'm, I'm saying that um, society and some women, black women, look at men as uh, you know that they they don't hurt or they all don't take care of their, their kids or you know all the negatives that society mainstream tries to put on black men that is really just. Uh, a stereotype because this you can never say all anyway, but I I mean I'll go personal now I know I'm a good father period so mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. and there's a lot of good fathers out there and also the fact that we do get into loving monogamous relationships and we do get hurt we get burned by a woman like you said that don't she don't text back the next day till the next day you know she's not about anything like women can have can date a bunch of men and they're weighing their options men date a lot of women and their dogs right, which 100% is true and and that you know by by nature 
a lot of women are, are hypergamous, right? And and that's how a lot of them are wired. Not all of them, but some of them in the sense that, you know, they want the best of the best. Because as men, we are the choosers, we are the pursuers. We are seen as dogs because, you know, we are trying to find the perfect match. But what people don't understand is that there's a difference between a man and a woman. Now, when a woman has multiple guys that she's interested in, you know, it's different because, you know, you could walk, if a woman walked down the street right now, she, you know, she's wearing a revealing top, you know what I mean? She's looking good, you know, tight, hugging, figure hugging dress. And she said to a guy, hey, look, I just broke up with my boyfriend. You want to have sex? I don't know any man that would say no, or at least say it, not now, okay. but maybe like in a couple of hours, right? If he was busy. There right. isn't really a man that would say no. Me personally, I'd say no just because like, it's too easy. There's something wrong in the hood. I'm going to get jumped around the corner or something, right? But for the most part, most men are going to say yes. If a man walks up to a woman and says that, the police are going to run upon him. He's going to get slapped. She might be carrying if she has a concealed carry. Like, it's over for that guy if he just walks up to a girl and says, let's have sex. So the double standard is, is getting worse and worse because misandry is, is increasing, you know, hatred towards men. We, we've just discovered in the last five years of the Me Too mo- mo- movement that there are a lot of men who have been abusing their power and authority to abuse women, which, you know, I don't condone. I think it's disgusting, and I think those men deserve their just desserts. However, because of that, we dealt with overcorrection. And what that meant when I say overcorrection is that Men who were just, you know, doing things like trying to pick up a woman at a bar or something, you know, other people would say, oh, that's harassment because we're trying to overcorrect the issue that has been happening for for so many years. And there's always been that double standard because women have always been painted as the damsels in distress, you know, the women who who are very delicate and, and you can't hurt their feelings, whereas men were always portrayed as we're just dudes running up on any girl and we're just trying to hook up with women and have sex and, and leave. When in reality... The tables have never been closer than they ever have before. As a man, I know if this woman is worth her salt, if she's as attractive as I think she is, she's definitely going to have two to four guys that she is talking to the same time she's dating me. And you know how it is as Mm. as a man. You know when you're rising to the top. You know when you're the number one guy. You know when she's not seeing any other guy before you. But in those beginning stages, she's definitely talking to other men. But for us, it's expected for us to just be like, okay, I'm only focusing on you. Like, it's a very terrible, terrible double standard that needs to change. Yeah, I I, I have to agree. And, and I, I wanted to throw the emphasis on, too, you know, the, the motherhood and the fatherhood. And um, and going back there, I did a, get I got a comment from someone said um, they don't, the man doesn't have to be perfect. You know, a lot of women comments. Uh, the man doesn't have to be perfect, but he he will be perfect for her, and they're perfect together, which I think is is profound. Um, but what about upbringings? We didn't get a chance. And folks, if you're just joining us, we're talking with uh, uh, Trey H. Hennis, aka Dr. Trey. He's a licensed rela- relationship therapist here on the Bachelor News Radio Show. If you're on the line, you have a question. I may. Uh, Queue, go in the queue and ask you if you have a question for our guest before he goes. And I see people on the line. So if, if you get silenced, that means I'm on the queue. I'm trying to ask you if you have a question for the guest um, that you want to, to, to relate to. And I see a lot of people on the line. Um, but, but, Doc, what about upbringings? 
because let's say whether you're married or not, we already talked about the statistics there um, with black women and, and black men, and maybe next week we get you on, we'll, we'll talk about interracial, which is a whole different thing that probably uh, get people riled up. But <laughs> if, you, if you're a, whether let's just say hypothetically, you're a black woman and you grew up with two parents and you're a black man and you grew up with one parent or no parents and you're trying mm-hmm. to connect and there's some different, there's some different experiences there. You know, mm-hmm. Naughty by Nature said, if you've never been to the ghetto, stay the bleep out of the ghetto. If you never had those experiences, then sometimes it's hard to relate. But, it, you know, no, but you know what right and wrong is. So what about those upbringings, if if they have different upbringings? I My sister raised me. God love her. Her birthday, big shout out to her, her birthday coming up Sunday. But my mother died when I was 11. My father wasn't around. I think I turned out okay. So I'm even in a different category. But what about those who had two parents as opposed to one parent or foster care or no parents? When they try to come together, does that play a part into it, the upbringing? Yeah, so, you know, Upbringing is is huge. It's very, very huge. You know, I remember where I was in a situation where I dated a woman who was incredibly affluent. Her her parent, her dad was literally a millionaire. You know, I think he was worth like 20 million or something like that. I looked him up online and I, I got a little bit intimidated. But it was just, you know, that was a source of contention where we didn't even think it would be because for a lot of issues that I was going through, she just couldn't understand. I remember I had just graduated from my MBA and I was struggling to find work and you know, she was just like, ah, oh, you'll find something. Like it's not that big of a deal. I was like, it is that big of a deal. Like I literally paid for this out of my own pocket. Like, you know, your parents paid for your school. They didn't pay for mine, right? And that was just one of the very different arguments that we had because, you know, she had different mentalities on money and how money should be used and how disposable money was. So your upbringing, you know, how you've been raised is just critical. I think what we're failing to understand with, you know, black love right now is that it's changed. You see, back in the day, if you were in the 60s or 70s, you know, for the most part, you two would probably have the same sort of family with financial status, right, I want to say. But now we're living in a completely different generation, whereas a black man or black woman, you could come from a well-to-do mom and dad who was making a hundred grand plus per year. And then, you know, he or she could run up on someone where they're dating someone who just had one dad or one mom that, you know, they weren't broke, but they were working class. They really saw their parents because they were always working overtime. You know, they scrimped and saved to go to college. Maybe they just got like a diploma and these two are meeting and they think it should work out because we're both flat. But in reality, values and how you brought up are everything. And hell, you could have, you know, two black people who were raised up in a fairly affluent background, but one of them, their family is completely atheist, and the other one's religious. It doesn't mean black love is going to survive that. It could, but it just, tra- it just takes extra work. So we're dealing with so many different ends of the spectrum when it comes to black love right now that you have to remember with any relationship, one of the key things that's always going to hold you together is respect and values. If you don't share the right. same values, you're going to lose respect. And if you don't have respect, you're never going to have love, period. 
Mm, amen to that. And, and to the to your point, uh, Doctor Trey, um, upbringings, especially when it comes to affluent or even middle class to poor. We grew up in the projects. We weren't gangster, but we were poor. So I, I, I've experienced the gun to my head by by uh, somebody trying to rob me or a cop in this climate, you know, police shootings and things of that nature. So I am going to be absolutely engaged in protesting and for social injustices and, and equality and those things. And, uh, you know, black woman may have never experienced that. Maybe never experienced that. So, you know, she she grew up and all her friends were, it was a, a rainbow and she never heard the N-word. She never had to go through those things. So when we come together, then there's some differences. And then I'm the militant black guy and and they can't relate. So, so even with that, uh, I would think uh, not just the upbringing of the values, Doc, but the environment, what you believe, what you've experienced, what you understand, you know, we didn't trust the police. That, that might've been something different for somebody else. So speak to that real quick. I mean, even with the upbringings of the neighborhoods, if, if you can't connect there, then it is going to have to take some respect, some trust and some understanding. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 completely concur with you you know even though i'm from london you know what people don't realize is that there are some ghettos of london so to speak and (laughs) you know uh despite that though when i when i first came to america you know the the second person i ever started dating you know she was african-american and you know she was talking and she she dropped the n-word a few times and i was like oh oh okay uh that's a bit commonplace over here huh Right. And, and then we kind of got into a discussion. I said, you know, you can't be hating on your own people. And she was like, well, no, that's just how we refer to each other. I'm like, well, that's disgusting. How could you call him that? That's racist. <laughs> right. And, right. You know, she explained to me the reason why it happens here is because we're owning the word. We're taking it back. You know, we it's ours now. You know, people try to use it as a, a racial jab at us. But now we're taking it back. That's why we refer to each other that way. And I was like, oh, Oh, okay, right, and and that whole thing was resolved, but not other black couples. It's not that easy, right? Because sometimes, and this has happened to me a few times, I once dated a black lady who was adopted by a Caucasian family, and me and her, we broke up because it was around, uh, I think it was 2014. Tamir Rice, right there, 14 year old kid, smoked right. by the police. Rest in peace, yep. Tamir Rice. And she just said, "Well, you know." Yeah, all lives matter. And if he wasn't there in the first place, you know, if he wasn't waving around a toy gun, then they would never have done that in the first place. And I'm like, I cannot believe that you're saying this. I cannot believe that you're saying this, right? Um, and you have some people that are like that, you know. And I'm not going to get into any words of what I would call that person, but you know, it doesn't always work because you have different values. Values matter for everything. How you're raised right. always matters. Right. Uh, I had a one final one that uh, someone said that um, um, I just want to make sure I, I, I got the quote uh, correctly uh, that said that um, you can only appreciate something more as when you do the work yourself gives you a sense of pride. And uh, again, uh, good comment there. 
Dr. Trey, uh, listen, I, I, we have to talk off air, so I want to make sure we get you on and we continue this this series and, and um, certainly um, delve in. I, when we have you on again, I want to talk about black love as it relates to the, the other side, self-hate, and why do we hate our own skin? And, and are we buying into what society uh, portrays us as? But before you go, I want people to know how they can reach out to you, your social media, your website, how they can, um, um, you know, uh, obtain your, your services. Yeah, for sure. Um, you can go to my website, thefirstdatefix.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at thefirstdatefix. You can follow me on Twitter, thefirstdatefix, and you can go on my YouTube at thefirstdatefix. I upload two videos two videos weekly on YouTube and Instagram. I post every day for daily advice and tips. I also do a free consultation if you would like your online dating app uh, profile to be maximized, and I guarantee you that I will get you at least one day a week if you allow me to maximize your online dating profile. Well, I, I tell you, 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 you're you a very impressive young man, Cambridge. Cambridge, you know, in London, that's the Yale of of the United States. So, I mean, anybody's not impressed yeah. with that, then I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know what they would be. Dr. Trey, I'm going to hit you up uh, off air. Thank you so much. God bless. Be safe. And I'll talk with you next week, sir. All right. God bless you, brother. Bye-bye. Hey, good evening. Welcome to another edition of the Bastion News Radio Show on the Bastion News Radio Network, WCOM, in Carborough, Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina. I'm L.A. Bachelor. We thank you for joining us. Whatever you've been doing, you could have been doing something else. We appreciate you checking in with us tonight. The number to reach us is 646-929-0130. You press 1 to get on the line. Our chat room is open, too. If you're online on Blog Talk, you could do it there. Uh, hit us on, uh, up on Facebook with your questions at Pad Nation and Pad Pad Nation 2 at Twitter. If you miss any part of the broadcast, go to our website, uh, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com. Want to go to my guest. Always a pleasure to have her on. Um, and, and one of the uh, best commissioners, I just I say that all the time, whether she's on the air or not, uh, the uh, first African-American D1, D2 commissioner uh, in HBCUs is. She is Jackie McWilliams. And uh, Madam McWilliams, uh, we appreciate you coming on this evening and your patient. Oh, my pleasure. Always good to talk to you and, and be invited to come back. That's good. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. First and foremost, how are you personally, your family and everybody in terms of, you know, year after, you know, COVID and of course still going on, there's places where it's sprouting up again. How are you guys doing personally? Yeah, thank you for asking. You know, we are we are well. Um, we are extremely blessed. Um, we're safe. We haven't been sick. Nobody in my immediate home um, were vaccinated. Um, you know, the beginning of the year was really tough, lost a lot of people, family, friends. Um, so I, I just think, you know, we're learning to take it one day at a time and just enjoy the day and do the best that we can, honestly. I mean, and then to watch all the things that are going on in the world that impact us all personally and professionally, um, it's, it's been challenging, but I, I know there's something good at the end of the road here somewhere, and I think we're just trying to stay focused as best as we can. 
you know, a lot of families, a lot of uh, communities have come together because of this. So as you mentioned, in tragedy, there are some, hopefully some brighter days um, uh, coming uh, with this. If you could take us back, I know we talked uh, sort of after it, um, you know, everything kind of shut down, but take us back when you, um, you and, and all the presidents of the, the universities decided to uh, not participate in athletics due to um, COVID-19 and what kind of went into that? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's interesting, that question, because it's around this time when we were trying to figure out what life was going to be like for CIAA, particularly going in the summer with programs, um, trying to get an approved budget um, with the un- unknowns if we were going to be able to return. You know, honestly, I went into last year knowing or, or having a sense that it would be very challenging of, challenging for us to come back. And so I had already prepared my team to think outside the box on if we don't come back, what can we do, assuming that, you know, we've got to be prepared for both scenarios. And I think that's all of us in this industry have been doing scenarios. If this happens, that happens. And when we met with our board last May, nothing, no decision regarding whether we were going to cancel or not had been determined because the, the COVID and data was still new. We knew things were rising um, and was hopeful that there would be an opportunity for somehow, some way we could come back. And when we got through the summer and realized, you know, the fall season was looking pretty dim, we even tried to extend it, we decided to to cancel the season, at least the fall, and we would wait until January to make a decision about basketball in spring. Um, we even talked about moving fall into spring. Um, that was challenging by itself given the overhead and the staffing and the cost associated doing that. Now there are a lot of leagues who are doing it, um, and they're wore out, um, but they're making it happen, I think, for the best decision of our conference. Um, to cancel our winter season and then even our spring, but giving some autonomy for our spring school, our schools to, to still try to play in the spring so that their athletes didn't meet, lose two years, we would give that opportunity but not have conference championships. And honestly, it's been tough. I mean, we run championships and events. This is what we do. It's really hard to watch other sports and other leagues, um, you know, try to execute. There's been a lot of cancellations, stop and go. It's a burn. Um, But, you know, some institutions and conferences are doing it. We chose not to. And in some ways I'm glad that we did it for the health of our student athletes um, and just the concerns that we had overall for our communities. You know, uh, Madam Commissioner, it's. I applaud um, the fact that you you had not only the courage, but just to look at it from the data, but also the health part of it. Um, and then, I mean, quite frankly, I mean, just the the economics, the loss of revenue. I mean, let, that's, let's yeah. just be real about it. Um, did, did you face any type of backlash from alum, from any of the schools, from even the student athletes? you know, other uh, conferences um, for making the decision that you guys made? You know, no. I, you know, you, you'll have a few that says shame on them or, you know, I tried to stay off the social media aspect on that as well because even if we decided to go, there would be people who were concerned and not happy, you know, parents. I mean, I got a lot of inbox from parents, um, you know, on my accounts just saying thank you. 
uh, we appreciate that decision. Then, you know, you've got some that say, you know, we should have just gave it a chance. And I think realistically, you know, to be in a position for our board, um, our membership, our athletic directors, our sports science um, professionals, senior women administrators, our coaches, our student athletes, I mean, we all – we all were in the conversation, so I don't think anybody was caught off uh, by surprise in our membership. Although, of course, our coaches and student-athletes want to play and at least give it a try, I think they respected and valued the decision that we made, mostly because the conference doesn't make um, emotional, reactionary decisions. We've done that way in the past, and we've learned from my experience, I've learned that when we're reactionary and we don't take the time to communicate with all of our constituents to conclude our sponsors, to understand what the impact is, um, that we don't put ourselves in a greater position. We put ourselves in a position to be prepared for the all-go and the all-not-go and the in-between. And we were on the side of the all-not-go, but still create an opportunity that great, gave great exposure for the conference and our student-athletes. We love our student-athletes. We all say that, but I, I generally love communicating with our student-athletes and getting their feedback. And when they say we're, we're okay, we understand, that gives me some comfort that we're doing what we're supposed to do on their behalf. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Jackie McWilliams, the commissioner in her ninth season, serving as the CIAA Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association Commissioner, first female to serve as commissioner for the conference and first appointed African-American commissioner representing uh, D1, 2, and 3 uh, divisions. Um, it, you know, a lot of the coaches I've had on, Madam Commissioner, not just in, in your conference, but in the MEAC and some of them. And they talked about the anxiety. They talked about, wow, it's mm. been 20 years or whatever. I haven't coached. I haven't been on the court. I haven't been, you know, and then they consoling and going through the process with the student athletes. Was there a sense of anxiety of getting back and, and having that plan in place? And then, and we'll get to what what's going on now, but having that plan in place and then saying, well, you know, let's, Let's hope and pray it does go right. And, and you know, what about sort of the, uh, the the counseling, if you will? Because, I mean, just whether you're a student athlete or if you're L.A. bachelor yeah. and you're closed in, there's a sense yeah. of, like, getting back to normal. So was it a lot of those type of um, resources available to the student athlete? Yeah, you know, we, we are blessed to have a, a great group of, not group, but individual consultants. You know, our, our diversity, inclusion, equity committee, um, head, headed by our consultant, Nevin Capel, with uh, Return of Inclusion. She's been with us for the last five or six years. Jessica on our staff, she leads our student-athlete advisory committee, meets with them monthly, and meets with our president, Bianca Lockney, who is um, a student-athlete at Virginia Union, and also on the NCAA Division II SAT committee, and having communication with her, you know, our students are just, they're incredible. I mean, they, they, understand their, they understand the mental health aspect of not playing. And I would tell you, um, I, I've been challenged too. Um, I've been playing the game since I was 18 in college, way before, but I've never not known not having the opportunity to play, to coach, or to even execute an event like mm. this. And so, you know, all of us, our administrators, our presidents, 
I mean, imagine leading your university, and athletics is just one component of safety of, of right. a population that you're trying to help me navigate on what's some of the best decisions for all of our student athletes that can impact your own campuses. And our coaches, part of our return of inclusion or our, our EDI group, we have coaches on there, representation, student athletes, one of our presidents, and they've been meeting. And we have put together this mind, body, and soul that started, I think, two weeks ago. But prior to that last summer, we had things that were going on, too, with voting registration. We've been able to really do some collaboration work with outside organizations, with our student-athletes, with our coaches, giving them the opportunity in this field time to get leadership uh, development through True North Sports. So we have invested some of our dollars to help support their leadership and coaching experience while they're sitting idle and still have access to those opportunities. So mental health, absolutely. I think all of us are like, this is not happening. The mental health of stopping and going, if you are playing, um, is detrimental as well. And so I think the true balance is, as some of our student athletes said, how do you take advantage of this moment now? We may not be playing right now, but what is it that you can do that still will make the difference in your lives of your family, in your opportunity to get your education, and then prepare to come back when that time happens? Because right now we're not playing. And so I think giving them those skills and being creative as a conference, how do we work as a community to help each other? This is the time. We don't have time to go back and forth and be bitter and be mad. Like, we need to stick together and really pull each other up in these times. Great point. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people were uh, talking about, and you mentioned, Madam, is that all of the social, the climate we're in, you mentioned the getting out the vote, and and I know you have your um, your corporate sponsors that that help out with that and but you know are you guys have you been pushing get the get vaccinated Uh, is that part of Mm -hmm. the the message that you are putting out whether it be public service throughout the ciaa or otherwise yeah you know we did a lot more of that during we did we're doing a lot more education i think it is not ed encouraging um, by doing these seminars. So the tournament, the virtual tournament was really our greatest opportunity on this mind, body, and soul, which we're having those conversations in these in the seminars and the summits that we're having over the next five to six months. I can't remember how long it is, but there will be components. We have some of our partners, um, Novant Health has come, doctors across the country, you know, regionally, partnering with Baltimore. Um, they had sessions, dealing with health, financial literacy, all those things that impact our community. And so the health component, I think April Ryan did a session during our virtual tournament in real live conversations with doctors and professionals on the ground, giving advice, encouraging us, and even a doctor saying, I haven't taken it, and I'm not sure I'm going to take it. So you're talking about authentic conversation from a health professional, and a lot of us was like, wow. So I think you know, opening up the door, creating spaces for the dialogue is important, and allowing people to determine what is best for them. I was hesitant initially, and then I decided to do it. I have a daughter who's 15. She has asthma. 
Um, you know, and I don't want to have any, and I don't go out that much, but I do think we are examples and leaders in getting our vaccines, but also getting pointing people in the right direction to get the right information so they can make decisions for themselves. I, I'm glad you said that. That's uh, that's real talk because a lot of people say when you take a side and say, yeah, get vaccinated, and, you know, and you, you take some form of political stance. But like you, you know, I, I'm type 2 diabetic, your daughters with the asthma. So you have to kind of make those decisions. And I think it's responsible for us to, it, it's our responsibility to, yeah. to point those things out. What people go yeah. and do it, at, you know, is is their call. But yeah. pointing that out, I think it's real, uh, real important. I won't hold you long. We're just talking with, no, um, uh, okay, Commissioner Jackie McWilliams here on the uh, the Bastion News Radio Show. Uh, maybe going backwards a little bit. What are the things that are in place on the campuses in terms of the precautions, in terms of the safeties, um, as you move forward to? Um, sports here in 2021? Yeah, we have a lot of, um, we've got some planning to do this summer. The good thing is that we had created our PPE planning, um, uh, sports planning, championship planning, budget planning. We have all of that, those templates. All we know is that things continue to change daily, information that we receive from the NCAA on protocols. We have put those together. We will spend time in the next two or three months, hopefully by by July 1, we'll know exactly where it is and what it is that we're going to be doing moving forward. We know our championship sites, um, but the big thing for us when we get back into, if you want to call it full swing, what does that look like and what can we manage? Will we have fans, not have fans? Will venues allow for capacity, some capacity? You know, what will testing look like, although – a lot of our universities have practice in this already. They have students on their campus, campuses. I'm really proud of our, our 12-member institutions and the leadership of our 12 presidents. They are no joke, no nonsense. They're learning from me. I'm learning from them. They care about the students, and they want to make sure that if we're going to be if we're going to move and get ready for this upcoming year, that we do have those necessary protocols in place to protect their campuses, but also um, to make sure that, that we are protecting the community that we're serving in. And so we'll get there. Um, I think my team is excited. Um, they're tired of being virtual experience experts. Um, we're ready to get on the ground and do the work that we, are, that we came here to do for our conference athletics. But we also will be watching the trends, and we'll also be mindful of the data, and we'll also continue to communicate and work with our, our membership to make sure that when we're ready to go, if we have to delay, that we're prepared to do so. We're responding and not reacting, um, but we're prepared to manage whatever the decisions are made moving forward. Uh, I know it's it's no easy task. I, I guess my my <laughs> next question, uh, a couple more, but my next question is kind of bundled into three. What what have you learned? Uh, what do you feel like you got right, and what do you feel maybe you guys, you know, even again, this is ongoing, that you could have maybe done differently. I mean, I, I honestly believe that we did a lot more right that we would have done anything differently. I, I do believe that we paced ourselves in our decision. What I'm really glad that we did is although we watched what was happening around us and was trying to learn from others, 
at the end of the day, we made the best decision for the CIAA and no other entity. Um, we knew what decisions were being made at the national level, regional level, con- other conferences. But when the conversation came to the board and to my team and to our membership, the dialogue was always what is in the best interest for the CIAA, understanding that there could be some losses and were we prepared to take that. And honestly, we've been through a lot of different stuff and have had losses. And somehow the grace of this conference and the blessings of this conference, we continue to prosper. And even through COVID, we, we ended up doing pretty well this year. Partners engaged in the virtual experience. I'm so glad that we – I'm so glad I put the seed out there for my team and, and got them to think about what that vision could look like over the summer because I said if the board does not approve us having winter championships, we need to be prepared to activate. We cannot go silent in February when this event is one of the major events that connects our community to the broader world. And so we did it. And so I think we did a lot of good stuff right, L.A. I, I, there's nothing that I would take back except COVID would go away and we could go full-fledged. But the way that we've communicated and come together have got real creative with sports network and talk show, um, the virtual, the leadership development programs. I think we did a really good job this year. I'm really proud of, my, of the conference, the membership, and my staff for just trusting in our leadership and managing the expectations that we didn't even know what they were going to be. Right, trial and error, but you know, like you said, um, it's it's been a, a blessing, and I, 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 you know, followed a lot of virtual stuff, um, <laughs> with in particular with the uh, uh, the, the basketball tourney. Speaking of twenty twenty one, what is this looking like uh, moving forward? Are 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 you ready now for um, the season 21 going into 22 basketball, some of the fall sports. So what is it looking at shaping now, even the summer stuff at this point? Yeah, we're excited about, I mean, we're, we're trying. So interestingly, we're working on doing a spring celebration for all of our seniors. Um, my team and student athletes have been working on this, so I have no idea what it's going to turn out to be, but I'm excited about, you know, the challenge that we have amongst our institutions to really celebrate us just getting through this year in COVID. That's what we do. We can celebrate even when it feels like the not the greatest times. This summer we'll spend time on getting ready for football. I'm not sure about um, – well, I'm sure there's a hope that we will have our leadership program for our student athletes, whether that's virtual or in place. With football coming around, football media day, not sure what that's looking like. But if we're going to have football, we will do something to highlight these athletes coming in volleyball and cross country. So we're going in regular planning. I can tell you my uh, championships and event staff, they are way ahead of schedule, way ahead of time. So they're just waiting for the go. Um, But I think the bigger piece for us is the safety. You know, will we have or will to make sure that we have all those things in place so that when we do go, my staff, those fans, our student athletes, our coaches, everyone feels like they're safe and um, and we have the proper protocols in place to manage that. So we're excited. The tournament, we're planning to go to Baltimore. Again, we have to vet out all of what that looks like, whether the entire venue or and again, it's all about data. It's all about state um, state policies and and what they're allowing. 
And so we'll stay in tune um, with all of our states. We have, you know, our schools are across five different states so or four different states. So we have to be mindful of what the state protocols are as well as we're implementing our championships. Yeah, and I guess my final question is two-part. It has, has – um... Has it affected the sort of getting your your feet on solid ground in Baltimore? Um, I know you already had, you know, made the decision, made the move, but then here comes COVID and it kind of knocks you upside the head a little bit. Has it affected it uh, in terms of the logistics? And then the other part of it, I guess, would be is if you get in these situations, we saw uh, at the the D1 level, and I, if I'm not mistaken either, also some of the other the other levels that – where schools, if they if they tested, if any of their players or coaches tested positive, they had a backup school to come and play in the tournament. Is this something that you guys would again, you know, playing it by ear, really um, would consider, or something along those lines? God forbid something does happen in one of your your major championships. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the conversation. You know, if you know the let's say the the COVID increase in a certain state and they're not able to play. Will we continue to move forward? That was a conversation that we had in this previous year. Um, this previous, this past year was real important for the board. They wanted to make sure whatever decision was made that we did it collectively as a conference. We didn't have any one-off. Um, but we'll see what that conversation is in our May meeting and over the summer as we move forward. Right now, I think everyone's intent is that we're able to move forward and like you said, if, if one of the teams or two of the teams, something happens, we'll have some protocol or backup to manage that. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of time, and it takes um, people, our teams, to work together to, to manage what's going to happen if, the if right? If this happens, then what happens? And so I think we'll be prepared to take care of those scenarios if, if that, if, you know, if our hands are tied in that way. Our hope is that, you know, this COVID thing will, I say thing, because, you know, they've honestly have said this, we're probably two years, two years, which seems like a long time. Now we're in a year. And just to think about not this year for one more year, does it feel good? So we're going to do the best that we can and provide the best that we can for these student athletes that want to play. And really the institutions, you know, they got to get through seasons. You can't have a championship if you don't have any games played during the season. So to make sure that they have what they need on their campuses to manage, you know, regular season play, minimum requirements, maximum requirements, those all have been adjusted, may be adjusted again, working with the NCAA. So there's a lot for us to think about coming into this fall season, which may not be a regular season that we've had in the past. Well, you got your hands full, but uh, I know the conference is in good hands uh, with you, Madam Commissioner, and uh, we appreciate you and Nine Season doing a phenomenal job. Of course, a two-sport athlete at Hampton, and like you said, you played the game and coached, and now you're in this position, and COVID is kind of wars down, but it's, uh, let's, we're just praying as a, a great light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for taking the time out uh, with us today, and we'll have you on again. We appreciate you. You'd be be well, okay? Oh, thank you. And you be well, too. God bless. God bless. Thank you so much.
Welcome back to the show. I'm going to go to Gerald Hoover. Uh, Gerald Hoover is a best-selling author and uh, uh, certainly uh, does a, a phenomenal job. His My Hero series, and we're going to talk about that. But uh, who I wanted to touch base with you and ask you, in this COVID-19, there's two things going on. We'll start with the education side. As you're a professor, you're an author uh, of those series. You talk about um, not only bullying and mentoring, but education. I mean, being able to spell, being able able to write a check i mean even if you don't write checks to learn how to to write signature things of that nature the basic things you know kids don't even know their home keys remember when we were kids we had the type mm-hmm. we knew the home key and all that but right now mm-hmm. in this this covid 19 and we're short on time so i want you to really get into it what are the pluses and minuses on online schooling I, in the beginning my kids were like you know what yeah this is cool we get to do it but now they're getting bored and they want to be around their friends so socially it's different but from an education Education learning standpoint, especially with black and brown uh, kids who are uh, not only uh, disadvantaged in some cases in neighborhoods, the books and all of those things. What's the pluses and minuses of learning online? Well, I'm going to go with more of the, well, I, it ain't the many pluses to me. Uh, um, I think it's more of the pluses that there's something happening as opposed to just being shut down and there's nothing happening at all. So at least there's something tangible that's being used. You know what I mean? Um, can it work? Yeah, I mean, it can. But I, but like you just mentioned, that social, uh, if the, the social part of it is part of the the the, the, uh, the dynamic of being able to know how to get along with, with your teammates. Uh, um, uh, I call them teammates, with classmates, uh, knowing how to function, as opposed to everything being robotic, pressing a button, and and that's the one thing I fear. LA is that with my with my book, I have a curriculum, and my curriculum is a full charge curriculum where there's a lot of writing involved. And that's by design because, you know, studies show that your memory is enhanced by writing things down. Also, you use a certain part of the brain when you're writing as opposed to just touching a button. A button. You use a certain part of the brain when you're reading as opposed to just things being sent to you digitally. And I think that's the where, that's where that's, we're going to have a problem. Uh, again, the plus is that we're doing something, you know, so it's better nothing, but the, the the minuses are a lot. It's it's a, and like you said, the, the your, your your young men are getting bored. Um, it's a lot. And then what happens is the kids are so inundated with these video games. You know, everything is digitized. You know what I mean? So they could be playing Fortnite for four or five hours. Now all of a sudden you're slowing the pace. Now you're trying to tell them to teach. Now you're trying to tell them to learn that way. It's a lot. So so they have to reprogram themselves on even how to learn. As opposed to being away from the computer, you know, instead of being away from the computer and being instructed by a teacher or some sort in the front, in front of them, where she's able to, he or she's able to do things live, you know, and in person, so to speak, and sort of uh, have the um, option of learning things on the fly as well, doing things on the fly. You really can't do things too much like that when you're online. You have to, you know, you have to kind of robot yourself a little bit as well. So, but again, pluses is that they're doing something. Minuses are a lot. And, and what I fear is that our children won't get the benefit of really being promoted in a proper manner, meaning earning the promotion. Because right now, you really can't fail a kid. I mean, you can't. I mean, how can you? You know, I mean, how do you fail a kid that 
that uh, parents may be suffering from COVID, and you know what I mean. They and, and, themselves might have had it. And who? That's that's a really a great point because uh, if you have a marginal kid, a kid that's been struggling, um, it, it, it's probably not doing a great service for that child if you pass them because of the situation and the climate we are in. And even before mm-hmm. this, speak to because I think we had this conversation before about uh, using. You know, I, I'm, I have a real issue with kids using calculators for math. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and not mm-hmm. counting, not writing things out like you said. I tell my kids all the time, write it mm-hmm. down, take notes. I, they can go into my studio, my, my, my office, and see nothing but notes. And I try to tell them, not only mm-hmm. take good notes, but make sure you have organized notes. So when you come back to it, mm-hmm. you know what it is. You put your name, date, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and some, mm-hmm. I, I see some of the kids that don't do that, but I get, I have a real issue when they use sort of these electronic things or things mm-hmm. that take away from counting and reading and all of these things, mm-hmm. audio and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Mm-hmm. Well, well I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to give you an analogy because I, I know you'll, you'll catch it. Well, I'm going to give you a saying. I'm going to give you an analogy. You know that, that was saying, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? So we, so we understand that part. But now, picture a person. That's a couch potato, straight up couch potato, remote in his hand, and beer in the other hand, eating chips, doing this for years, watching TV, you know, the shape got different, what have you. Then you say, okay, I want you to get in shape, the best shape of your life within three weeks. But tonight we're going to start off with you running five miles. That person wouldn't. That person wouldn't walk good four blocks. I mean, five blocks really good. Without him, like, oh my gosh, I'm tired. And that's the same thing that's happening with our babies' brains because they're not using that part of the brain, like you just mentioned. The all you're doing is pressing the button. You're not trying to figure things out in your head. You know what I mean? So you're not you're not exercising that part of the brain. And we know the brain is an organ, but it acts as a muscle. You might as well call it a muscle because it acts like a muscle. But if you don't use certain things to critically think, um, conceptualize things, figure things out in your head, ponder over stuff, if you don't use that kind of that part of the brain, when it's time to use it, you, you please I mean, think about how many people. I guarantee you, at your audience, if you ask them, if you have read a book, in the, if you have, if you ask them if they have read a book or a long article in a long time, and they if they're gonna do it before they go to sleep, I say read the article. I guarantee you they fall asleep before they do it. Because that brain ain't ain't being used, so now you're gonna tell me read all this, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Within a certain period of time, that brain is over, it gets overloaded, and then all of a sudden it starts to shut down because you have to build it, you have to build it back up. And so this is what's happening in LA with too many with too many of our children because they're so used to pressing buttons, pressing buttons, pressing buttons from video games to learning that when you tell them to do certain things, either they can't do it, they don't want to do it, or they don't know how to do it. So guess what? It's not done. And my fear, I mean, I'm saying as I'm saying as a my, my my son is 29 years old, so I'm not, I'm I'm not a concerned parent for him, but I'm concerned parent for others. Because as an educator, every child that comes into your classroom or any class, any 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 of me when I go to schools, those children become my children, and I say it openly. I'm like for for the for the time being, I'm here. You belong to me, That's right. and I treat them as they're my children. And so my fear is that. Because they took penmanship out of schools, you know, so these kids don't know how to write cursively, nor can they read it. 
so, so our bodies are a script. They, not, not only can they not read the script, they can't, I mean, they can't write it, so they can't read it. So now you're telling the 18-year-old, 19-year-old, go register to do this, sign this application, go do this, and they say sign your name, he's writing in print. He's or she writing in print. And to be or not, the way they write, they're not even writing online. I mean, in other words, you, you tell the kid to write in print on the line, they're writing in between the line. I mean, they're, writing, I mean, they, they're putting their name, like, uh, they're writing across the line because they don't have a concept of writing, bro. That is, like, scary. Yeah. And that's happening worse for our black and brown babies than it is for other other children because other children, they, they, the ones that have the means to it, they're being taught how to write and script. Sure. So now, so education system, it seems, they seem to have put that on the parents, which is not fair. Not, no, 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 when I say fair, because that's a basic requirement, writing. You know what I mean? That, that, should, that should be something that should be uh, uh, cataloged in schools on, 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 and, and, and should be progressed in school because L.A., that's how we learn. You know what I mean? Our time tables, we did that in school. Right. Our, our writing, our penmanship, you know, writing between the lines, our tracing. Of le- you know what I mean? We did that. We did that in school because although, it was part of our curriculum. Although I write like a doctor without the money, but I mean, sign. Like hey, no, no, hey, 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 me too. <laughs> hey, hey, here's a funny thing. Me too, and I'm ambidextrous with it. I can write with both hands. I have left hand, right hand. I can do both, and I can write equally sloppy. So we're in the same boat. Yeah. I get that, but at the end of the day, my friend, we can read that. We well, and we can read some lots of sla- and we can read some lots of sloppy handwriting too because right. we're, we're accustomed to doing it. Right. You know what I mean? So, so, but, but again, our babies aren't getting that privilege. And, and with that, they're going to lose so much in this fake, illusion-filled, digital-based world. Right. Because it's, it's really an illusion. Yeah. It's an illusion, bro. It's yeah. an illusion. Talk these, with these the, smartphones have made, made us dumb. Talking with uh, Gerald Hoover, best-selling author of My Friend, My Hero, a book targeting young black and brown boys ages 12 up and up here on the Bachelor News Radio Show, Bachelor News Radio Network, and WCOM, Chapel Hill, and Carborough, uh, uh, North Carolina. And we'll get to the, the book series and info there. Um, really sort of the final uh, phase, and I know you said there's the positives because they're doing something. But again, um, the concern I have is that even before the virus, even before they had to go online, and some are going back to school in certain places, and I mean... You can get into if it's safe or not. That's a whole different discussion for another day. Um, but the fact is that, you know, it, kids, even before the virus, and I, and I have to, again, I challenge mine all the time, um, it, it, They work is not, it, I wouldn't say it was necessarily fun for us, but, mm-hmm. you know, we knew we had to do that, and we knew at the end of the day it was going to make us better. Even sometimes we mm-hmm. didn't feel like going to school. I tried to play hooky. My mother found out all the time, but I had to do what I had mm-hmm. to do. And it didn't seem mm-hmm. as forced on us as it is with kids. Kids like, okay, if you, you do this, you can play this, or you can go outside. And they push and they zooming through it. But at the same time, you want to tell them, no, take your time. Because a lot of teachers say, take your time, read the, read the questions, you know, when you're taking the test. And it seems like these kids, our kids, are trying to zoom through a lot of the the work, and they don't seem to get it. It's more robotic than mm-hmm. consumption and understanding and comprehending it. You 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 buy mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that, that's the fear. And, 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 and matter of fact, you said it eloquently, but you basically repeated what I was saying and what I said. It. When these when our babies get a certain age, they're not going to be able to function other than 
doing what they've known. It's almost like putting a, you know, you know, they put the uh, blinds on horses, run that straight, run a straight line. They won't know how to do anything else. But oh, it's not, it's not set in stone this way. They won't be able to do it. And that's where too many of our child children are going to fail. That's where they're going to fail because they won't have options on how to do things any other way. And that's going, that, and that's a criminal act, if you ask me. It's a criminal act. It's written because, I, and, and that's why I said it's fake, illusional, filled world, because you'll say, oh, no, he got a so-and-so on his test. But, yeah, he was pressing a button that you helped him press because you're trying to get that funding because the state mandated so-and-so and so-and-so, which the state has no, they have no clue what's going on on the ground. They're a bunch of bean counters and doing whatever they're doing. They have no clue or concept of what is done on the educational level. None. Because if they did, or if their children was in the belly of the beast, they wouldn't have that kind of they wouldn't have that kind of outlook. And just to interrupt but, too, if they if our kids aren't learning, again, post uh, pre and post COVID nineteen, they're ready to uh-huh. put them ready to put them on meds, you know, Ritalin and whatever, oh it's whatever. Man, um, and, 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 and bro, and, and LA, I was I believe it or not pre COVID. As a matter of fact, you we've had discussion about my book before COVID. Pre COVID, well, I started my curriculum. Two years ago, I mean, like getting it in stone. So I, I so I'm, I'm well ahead of the COVID part. I was yelling and screaming about in 25 years if we're not careful that we're going to have an educational apocalypse. I was saying this for about two years now. Now it's probably going to be closer than that because we're going to lose two and a half years. Okay, this way, for every child I was already behind, tack on two more years. You know, go. You're not going to fail a kid. They're going to promote them socially. But think about the average 10th grader that's ready for college, getting ready for college in two years. They're going to be functioning on a sixth-grade reading level or sixth-grade sixth grade work level. So, so that so, means when they graduate high school and, and graduate to go to college, they're going to, they're going to, it's going to be a, very, a real challenge. So real, real quick, because we're running out of time, um, what would be some of the solutions you have you know, right now with COVID and, and moving forward? And please do... I'll let people know how they can get my friend, my hero, talk about the book and, and where they can find it. Sure. Well, I, I'll, I'll do that first because it's fresh in my head. Uh, my, my website is called The Hero Book Series. Right, TheHeroBookSeries.com. Um, for those that are educators or they want to uh, do some homeschool and help, help, help them enhance, you can order my book, and I will even let you know how to get the curriculum to go with it. Now, the curriculum... Uh, it has a study a study guide which you have to write, read, uh, do some uh, uh, research to learn how to do words, how to put words together, context clues. I mean, it's, it's, it was the same thing you would happen in the school. Also, have a teacher's edition to where you have the answers. So, for you parents that have young children, okay, Johnny, do this, do this, do this. You as a parent, whether you've been to school lately or not, it's okay. You have the teacher's guide. You have the answers. The sentences you have answers, the, the, the multiple choice that you have. The, you have all the answers. I even have a pretest, but you can say here, Johnny, take this and let me see how you can do with that. Then I have what's called a unit assessment, and I have answers for that as well. So you have a student success guide, you have a teacher's edition, and you have a unit assessment. So you have all those, and you're good. What I would suggest: put a physical book in your child's hand. E-learning is fine. I my book is on tape now. It's coming out in about a month. I, I even have ebooks, which okay, I, I'm not really for them, but I know people. I don't want to read it like that. That's fine. 
but put a physical book in your hand. The five senses that we're blessed with are given to us for a reason. Putting a physical book in your hand speaks volumes to the mental soul, mind, and body. There's a lot of, and go on YouTube and research touch on how the effects are of touching a book. Google that. Touch it, touching a book. Wow. How powerful. You start that your knowledge starts to your your knowledge starts L A with just touching the book. It's powerful. I I, I just saw that I just saw something like that the other day. And it's funny because I've been thinking about it. Because you know cause, you know I give you an example. Let me let me say something really quick. I'm really short on time. In the in the in the Bible. I'm, I'm sorry. In, in church, people have told me. I'm, I remember old ministers telling me. I would say, well, Elder So and So, what do I learn? What do I read in the Bible? What should, what should I do? They, they, you know, they would tell me, say a prayer, put your hand on top of the Bible, and just open it. Meaning, I heard meaning that before. You'll find it. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying, Ella, Ella, You know where I'm going. You know where I'm going. You know. I'm going. There was something powerful about putting your mind right with it, coming, becoming one with the story that you're about to read, and then opening the book deep with that. Deep. And, and so we keep giving these books, these, 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 these digital books and everything. You ain't helping these kids. Put a book in your hand. Put a physical book. The five senses are, are given to us for a reason. That's if right. you dummy us out with that, we ain't going to have them, buddy. We're gonna be ro- people are going to be robots. That's right. It's not going to work for us. Yeah. It's not going to work for us, bro. And the learning is, is robotic at this point because of that. Come on, man. Yeah. You're right. Come you're on, absolutely man. Come right. on, man. Yeah. Well, on, we, 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 gonna, we can't afford that, bro. We can't. We can't. And you talk about apocalypse. Oh my God! You, you, <sighs> you, on, being, you, you get your Negro Domus points because you have been talking about this for quite some time. So uh, I know that for a fact. Hoove, I love you, man. Appreciate you. Be safe. Uh, I'll talk too, with you very, very soon. We'll get you on next week and talk some you. more about this. Okay. My pleasure, my brother. Take Be care, safe, man. All right, man. Follow us at Pad Nation Two at Twitter, Pad Nation at Facebook. And LA Bachelor on Instagram. If you missed the show, go to the bachelornews.airtime.pro. Interested in advertising on the show or having your own show? Email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com.
I'm the better version, call me 2.5. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got all the time in the world. No expectations at all. I just want what I said to you, girl. Believe that headache, babe. I'm just tired enough. 